And so, God, we've gathered in this room to seek your spirit, to find who is our master, and we may not even know it. And so, speak, God, and may we understand who we belong to. Amen. Well, let's have some fun facts about New Year's resolutions, huh? Oh, yeah. About, uh, let's see, I think we got a list of uh, the resolutions that people make. Is that right? On the side screens? I can't see them from here. I'm back so far. Um, Yeah, so 41% of people make New Year's resolutions. So you're like, oh, good. I knew I was in the majority when I didn't make a New Year's resolution. 41% make a New Year's resolution. 42% fail to keep their New Year's resolution. Even more people fail to keep a resolution than even make a resolution. And those who only ever keep a resolution are only one in ten. So you're like, yeah, I knew there was a good reason for not making these darn things. But here they are. This is your top ten list of the 2017 um, New Year's resolutions. Number one, lose weight, healthier eating, blah, 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 blah. Number two, life self-improvement. So... Okay. Better financial decisions, number three. And number four, quit smoking. Got that one done? All right. Uh, Never did anyway. Number five, uh, do more exciting things other than sit on the sofa. How's that? Uh, Spend more time with family and close friends. Work out more often. I like the openness of that one. Often. Very often. Once. This summer, I'm going to. So, eight, learn something new on my own. Number nine, do more good things for others. Okay. And number 10, ah, well, why not? Find the love of my life. (laughs) Yeah, like number 10 is being like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, I'm going to do that one. So, uh, which is, you just don't want to tell your spouse that one. Uh, So, um, it is New Year's, and so I always think it's a good time here in the deep, dark winter of Kansas City, Missouri, to uh, take inventory of our lives. And so we have, uh, I have a resolution to give you, and that would be very simply to follow Jesus. Resolve to follow Jesus more intensely, more deeply, more closely than you were last year. So let's resolve to follow Jesus. Let's pray that 2017 could be that year when you look back and you say, I'm closer to God now than I was. I am a markedly different person spiritually than I was a year ago. So this morning I want to give us some uh, less well-known strategies uh, for drawing close to God as well as actually making some other changes in life that I think are sort of what I'm just going to call them quirky because they're kind of strange, but it comes out of a lot of the research that I've been doing over the last few years. Uh, so, but first, before we get to the quirky things about how to change our lives, let's just consider this. Consider how a person actually draws closer to God. So here's an interesting prayer from Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, writing somewhere around 7800 BC. Jeremiah writes about his relationship with God, and he says this, and this is out of the Jerusalem Bible, uh, a older, interesting Uh, version, translation of the Bible. Jeremiah says, you have seduced me, Yahweh, 
and I have let myself be seduced. You have overpowered me. You were the stronger. You have seduced me, Yahweh, and I have let myself be seduced. You have overpowered me. You were the stronger. Now, seduced is a curious choice of words here. Uh, probably meant something, you know, 100 years ago or whatever. Um, a little different than how we think about it now. Now it's got some sort of romantic, if not erotic, sort of overtone to it. But nonetheless, if we keep the word rather neutral, it begs this inability to resist or control one's emotions or will. It's as though you've been taken over or possessed. You've been captured. Other translations will say, use the word, uh, God, you have enticed me. If you want to look it up on your phone or in your Bible or whatever, you can see what Jeremiah 20 says in your translation. But being seduced by something is a very curious way to think about God. And that's why I wanted to use it this morning. Because we're all being seduced by things and we don't like to admit it. We're being seduced by upgrading our car. We're being seduced by wanting a new boat. We're being seduced by new, you know, granite countertops. We're being seduced by, I need a new 24-volt power drill. We're being seduced by stuff all the time. All the time. And it comes from advertisers telling us, like, your life is incomplete unless you have this. Everyone's being seduced. If I just simply say, Gates ribs. Right now, everyone's being seduced by Ollie Gates' you know, barbecue ribs. They're like, yeah, I need to get that done. That's a great idea. I hadn't even thought about that. You're, you're right. That was deep within my, my spiritual soul. I need Ollie's ribs, some Gates ribs. So what's seducing you and shaping you? Because seduction has a, a notion that you don't know what's going on. It's happening to you. You're being tricked. And Jeremiah says, God, you seduced me. He knows, though, in this point, in this prayer, he knows that God is the one who is seducing him and that Jeremiah realizes he is being allowed to be seduced. He has given God permission to be seduced. Yeah? So, Two points come out of this. God is after us, which is a huge thing for most Christians. We think following Jesus and coming to God is first and foremost our energy and our effort and our task, and that's not true. God has always been the one who searches. God has always been the one who even puts the desire for God within us. All the way back to the 4th century, Augustine, the great theologian of our faith, probably the greatest theologian ever, Augustine said, our hearts are restless, Lord, until they rest in you. You have chased us down. So two things, God is after us. And then secondly then, we either resist God's seduction or we allow it. Point is, God does the chasing. The question then is, is will we allow ourselves to be seduced by God? And it's a constant day in and day out struggle. Will I listen to the voice of God? Will I I obey? Will I be seduced? Will I be like Jesus today? So if God is after us and we do not feel close to God, 
then we have to assume that we're somehow running from God or hiding from God or we just plain old don't trust God. I mean, I really think it comes down to a lot of that. We, we, we think we're trusting God, but I don't think we actually live in such a fashion that looks like we're actually trusting God. It's not so much hiding from God as much as we just simply don't think God is capable of taking care of us. The problem then is this. We're fighting the seduction of God. And we have committed what A.W. Tozer said, you know, some 50 years, well, 40 years ago or so. Tozer said, he called it a heresy. And this is what Tozer said. He says, he says uh, that we're wanting Jesus' atoning blood, but not his leadership. He says, A.W. Tozer expresses his feeling that a notable heresy has come into being throughout the evangelical Christian circles. The widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as Savior and that we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. The heresy is, is that we have split. We have split Jesus as Savior from being Jesus as Lord. We think we can take on Jesus' salvation without actually following Jesus. That somehow we can postpone the followership of Jesus, but still somehow retain the salvation of Jesus. Like, as I've always said, you know, you get your, your get-out-of-hell-free card, and then you think you're good. And then we just go on and live our life as we always did. Because, you know, we got the Jesus ticket in our back pocket. I'm good. What an interesting split that Tozer calls a heresy. Dallas Willard calls it out, and here's his quote. And Dallas Willard always writes rather thickly, so I have to put it up on the screen for you. He says, it, he says it more pointedly like this. Get ready to take a big gulp. But you might wish to think, Willard says, you might wish to think about what your life amounts to before you die, about what kind of person you're becoming, and about whether you really would be comfortable for eternity in the presence of one whose company you have not found especially desirable for the few hours and days of your earthly existence. And he is, after all, the one who says to you now, follow me. Willard, taking it to task. Why in the world would you want to go spend an eternity with somebody you don't care about to spend any time with now? That sounds like a drag. So the question becomes, is Jesus really our life teacher? Will, over the coming year, will you allow yourself to be seduced by God? Will he actually be your master? Not just your savior, but will he be your Lord? Do you want to spend time with him? I think far too often we think of Jesus in these sweet, sugary images like some prophet with a snappy answer for everything, you know, or somebody who sort of critiques society and religion, you know, and sort of snickers and snarks off in the corner somewhere. Or some sort of wandering sage who might say things like, all we are, Mr. Socrates, is dust in the wind, you know, or something like that. Like that's Jesus. Some sort of Buddha or some sort of Mr. Rogers or maybe on the really radical side, some sort of Che Guevara, you know, or something like that. Perhaps we choose not to follow Jesus because we lack the adequate respect for who he is. We don't appreciate who Jesus, the person, really is. We think more current voices are smarter 
and better at living than Jesus Christ. We look at quantum physicists who try to explain everything in eternity, and we pay more attention to Albert Einstein and Stephen Hawking than we ever do about Jesus, about understanding how the world operates. We get our morals from celebrities like Oprah Winfrey instead of looking to Jesus Christ. We're awash in advertisers who who are pounding away at us that our lives are absolutely incomplete, that you are a failed human being, the advertisers say. You're completely incomplete because you don't have the coolest, latest smartphone, the safest SUV for your children, you bad parent, and, and you don't have a virtual assistant named Siri or Alexa or Cartana, you know, and you certainly don't have an automatic jar lid opener. Your life is a sham. You don't have the automatic jar lid opener. I've got to get me one of those. What would Jesus have to do to compete with an automatic jar lid opener? Why would we listen to Jesus when we can have a self-driving car and a Fitbit that tells us how to live life? We don't take Jesus seriously as a person of incredible, great ability. How can we draw to Jesus if we're persuaded that Jesus has nothing to offer us, that he's irrelevant? How can we admire a man who we are convinced is out of touch? Why would we worship a man who never invented a time-saving automatic jar lid opener? And yet, has anyone, anyone figured out how to walk on water? Is anyone smart enough to figure out how to change plain old water into wine? Is there any doctor who's shown up at the bedside of a little girl who's been dead all day and with no modern medical technology simply speak the word, awaken? And she's back alive. Is there a counselor, dead or alive, who could diagnose the motives of the human psyche like Jesus? Is there a politician savvy enough to figure out how to navigate greedy, conniving political despots like King Herod, violent empires like the Roman Empire, betrayers like Judas Iscariot within his own ranks, and still come out looking like the most revolutionary, most powerful person in all of human history, defeating every power there is, including death. And he did it on his own. Keep in mind, Jesus said, I lay down my life, I take it up again. Who is smarter than that these days? Who should we really be admiring Who should we be giving our life to? Who should we be following? Who should we allow to seduce us that is more brilliant than Jesus? And why wouldn't we commit everything in our entire life to this man? Our children, our finances, our possessions, our home, our wants, our desires, our sleep habits, the way we organize our daily routine. Why wouldn't we do that? This Lord, this master, this brilliant man. How do we then allow ourselves to be seduced by God? The seduction of God uh, comes through Jesus Christ. The one man who showed us how how to live life. That one man. 
how does this happen? Well, we take a lesson then from Jesus, and it's quite simple and yet very, very difficult. Matthew chapter 26. And going a little further, Jesus threw himself on the ground and prayed, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. Ah, here is the secret, everyone. Not what you want, Father. Uh, Not what I want, but what you want. Here is the submitted soul. Jesus himself seduced by the Father. Saying, not my will, but yours. Thy will, not my will. This becomes the prayer of Jesus Christ. And of course, the verse goes on immediately and says, then he came, he's in the garden, right? Then he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, the disciples, and he said to Peter, so you could not stay awake with me one hour? You couldn't keep your news resolution two weeks? Stay awake and pray that you may come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we all said, amen. Ain't it the truth? That poor old flesh that can't seem to get its act together, that can't go to the gym, that can't get its finances straightened out, that can't find, apparently, the love of your life. See, Jesus is in a garden at midnight, so don't miss the situation where he is. He's in a garden at midnight. It's the night of his betrayal. Within a few moments, guards are going to come, and Judas Iscariot's going to come and deliver him the kiss of betrayal. And he will go to the cross then the next day. Not what I want, but what you want. To organize the year, I'm going to propose this. Where's your garden? And I don't mean necessarily something out in your yard or something like that, but where's the garden in your life? Where's the garden in your life? Where and when do you allow yourself to be seduced by God? Because frankly, our lives are organized so that we do not have the proper place and time to actually be seduced by God. We have figured out how to not avail ourselves the proper time and space to be with God. It's really quite simple. I'm not just talking a time management issue. I'm talking space and time. I'm talking a garden. Where does someone actually say, not my will, but thine? It's in a garden. Jesus didn't do it walking down the streets. He didn't do it in the middle of the afternoon. It was in the middle of the night, and he's in a garden. And it comes to that point that time and place, time and space are more critical than what when it comes to spiritual formation. This is what I've come to learn over the years. What I've also learned then over the years of attempting to disciple people is that first and foremost, taking a cue from Jesus, people who wish to be seduced by God and follow Jesus must be teachable. (laughs) It's amazing how many people I run into that actually want me to help them, but they do not wish to be submitted, not just to me, but to Jesus. They are not teachable. They lack the proper traction 
for the word of God or for any advice or wisdom or the counsel of the church or for brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside them. They don't want to hear how to organize their finances or how to raise their children. They're not teachable. It's the first great failure of discipleship. You will never be seduced if you're not teachable. Not my will, but yours. I can't think of a more teachable phrase out of Jesus. Lots of people want to follow Jesus, but only the teachable ones were chosen. And let me tell you, Peter and the rest of them were not the smartest. Or as my son always used to say when he was little, he's not the brightest knife in the drawer. You know. None of these guys were powerful or popular or well-connected, but they were teachable. Second, seduction takes place in a garden. Spirituality is not about collecting information primarily. Information has its place. It's not about three-ring binders and books and podcasts and accumulating more and more info. Spirituality is about time and place. It is about a garden. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says Jesus' habit was this. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went into a deserted place. And there he prayed. Early in the morning, while it's still dark, Jesus gets up and goes to a place to be seduced by God. (laughs) So you want to spend the next 12 months, the next month, getting closer to Jesus? It's pretty simple. It's not just about reading the book. It's about being in the right place and at the right time. And the content will follow. We should create a garden in our life, everyone. Did you know that homes during the Middle Ages and even back to the Roman Empire, um, what archaeologists find and sociologists and anthropologists find is that over and over in cultures and cultures and cultures, in private homes, in hovels, in peasant houses, there were little sanctuaries. There were little chapels. If you're rich, you had an entire chapel in your, you know, state house. But if you were poor, even the poorest peasants had small shrines. They had small places of prayer. And we sit around and say, like, oh, well, we're so much smarter than that. We don't need these sort of votive figures and all this witchcraft type stuff and things like that. Like, we're not talking that. We're talking Christians had their place with either their scriptures. Most of the time, they couldn't read anyway. They had a cross. They had a small frame of a picture or whatever. Perhaps a figurine of a saint. And that is the place. When they knew they went to that place, that's where they encounter God. Prayers were memorized, and they could recite them there on the, on the spot. What do we have in our culture? I'll tell you what we have in our culture. All chairs in your living room point toward the big blue screen. And that is our sanctuary. And that is our shrine. True? My chairs do in my living room. God forbid that you ever put a chair in front of the television. Create a garden. It might be the most primary thing to do. See, 
I'm just getting at the fact, it's simple as this. The reason why people don't keep their New Year's resolutions to go work out and why there are so many uh, Nordic tracks and Bowflexes sitting empty in people's basements from Christmas's past is because they lack the proper place. And that's why it makes more sense, even from a start, that people will go to the gym and let the Bowflex, Bowflex stay in the basement. The community becomes important to actually get something done. Then all the question becomes is, is are you going to show up? Fail. So you know what I mean? But the community helps. It's amazing the sort of thing. So let me give you just a few ticks, uh, tips and tricks here about how to get this sort of thing done. It's very, I've made a study of this over the last several years, and I keep saying this to everybody. But um, I have I've become a student of myself making oatmeal in the morning. I know, oatmeal. It's sort of a disgusting breakfast food. I, I put it off for years and years, and I always thought, oatmeal, it's disgusting. And then I started going up to this monastery all the time, and all they ever served was oatmeal for breakfast. And I thought, this is yucky, sticky, gross stuff. <coughs> and then something weird happened. I was seduced by oatmeal. And I started eating oatmeal all the time, and now I can't help but eat oatmeal, and I watch myself in the morning. This is such a curious thing. I can go into the kitchen and say, I'm not going to eat oatmeal. I'm tired of eating oatmeal like a dog going to their dish. I'm not going to eat the oatmeal. And sure enough, somehow I eat oatmeal every morning. It's complicated to make. I have to cook things and stuff like this and clean stuff. Oh, the power of habit and the routine in the morning. Now, if I so choose, like my wife chooses, then I do not to instead in the first thing in the morning get up and put on workout clothes, there might be the, the pattern and the routine set up that I would actually go work out. But no, I dress like this and eat oatmeal. And think about uh, New Year's resolution number four, I believe, which says, I will work out more often. See, there's a lot of study to be done. If you're really curious about this sort of thing, you can read The Power of Habit, the book that came out, uh, New York Times bestseller, uh, Power of Habit, details actually how habits actually work, and it's amazing. See, the reason why most of us don't get our um, New Year's resolutions done or change anything in life is simply because we think we only have one thing going for us, and that's willpower. And willpower is a terrible, weak thing. Willpower functions much more like a muscle, and it wears out. You, you drain willpower throughout the day. You start off good, and then by bedtime or close to it, uh, willpower's gone. And uh, the best description of it really is functioning like a muscle. So that's why when it's 10 o'clock at night, the bowl of ice cream looks really, really good. Because you start doing this little routine. Poor me, I'm tired. I've had a hard day. It was especially stressful. Brackets, my willpower's all used up. I deserve a break today. Ice cream. Why, that's the habit. As a matter of fact, when I get up and go into the kitchen, I say, don't eat the ice cream, don't eat the ice cream, don't eat the ice cream. Pretty soon, I've opened the freezer, got out the ice cream, and I'm eating the ice cream. How'd that happen? Habit, not willpower. No willpower is left at 10 o'clock at night. What we have to do uh, and everything that we do in life is just deeply entrenched in our habits. Every habit has three parts to it. The cue, the routine, and the reward. 
The cue says, I'm getting sleepy. The routine, that's easy. Open the freezer, get the spoon out, blah, blah, blah. The reward is, I feel yummy. Go to bed. That's the way it works. Your brain's happy, your body says it's time to sleep, and it brings a close to the end of the day, and it's actually more the routine and the habit that makes us eat things that we don't wish to eat, the bag of chips and so forth, not actually because, you know, we think it's all great for us or anything like that. Meanwhile, all that sugar that you ate, you know, as you guys know this sort of thing, probably better than me, is all being stored into fat, you know, because your body uh, thinks, hey, we need this because, you know, we got to go climb that mountain this week. Sure you do, often. So these are the sort of little things that go on. Um, just a, a couple other things then. For young parents, if you're the parent of young children and you're trying to figure out how to survive, you know the great threat. The great threat is, is that you want your young children to grow up fast. And you can begin to fall into the trap of always living in the future for your children. I can't wait till they get out of diapers. I can't wait till they can start feeding themselves. I can't wait until they want to take a bath. I can't, you know what I mean? All of these sort of things, and pretty soon you're never living in the moment and enjoying your child. So there are a few things that would help, help you survive. They're often quirky, weird, sort of -of out-of-the-way deals, but here's some of them. After the kid goes to bed around 7 or 7.30, I'm talking little children, and you usually veg out in front of Netflix, instead, at least once a week or whatever, then play cards together or speed scrabble or something for an hour. Before you say, like, are we done yet? Can I go pass out? You know what I mean? Find something that's more like where actually the faint hint of this question that will come up, come up which for men is, is, is a huge effort to ask, how was your day? Oh, okay. Pass me another card. So this sort of thing, to interrupt the routine of Netflix in place of playing games all right, would be a good idea. Maybe a two-person board game. Lori and I were so desperate in the early days when our kids were small and they went down at 7.30 or whatever and we played every card game we could think of. And we we even took Settlers of Catan, a four-person board game, and we developed a two-person version with fake people and so forth. It didn't work. We just ripped off those fake people the whole time we tried to play that game. You know, they were were such putzes, you know. Um, So we just kept trying to do that sort of thing. Uh, Grade school parents... Um, here are two proposed goals. One, eat dinner together every night. Research shows that families that eat dinner together during the week, their kids do better in school. I don't think it's actually about the dinner. I think it's about the type of family that actually eats dinner together, if you know what I mean. That doesn't say, fast food, everybody, pile in the car, we're going. Instead, they sit down and eat dinner together not to mention saving some money. Second thing for grade school uh, parents, read to your kids in the evening. You may not be a reader, but read to your kids. Uh, Well, I recently did a a small study around here, and um, I had all these bright, educated people that I was surveying. They all said and kind of kicked the dirt and said, oh, shucks, and everything, because I I asked them, uh, what are your reading habits? And they all said, like, I don't really read very much. One or two were, like, fantastic readers and read everything and got their hands on. But most of these college-educated people said, I don't read. 
What they didn't realize, and I didn't say anything to them, is that reading has gone up three times, uh, uh, over three times in the last 20 years. People are reading an amazing amount, and we don't know it because you're staring at a smartphone, and you're reading blogs, and you're reading text messages. Reading is off the scale. The problem is it's not really the right kind of reading, which is abstract thinking reading. The abstract thinking reading that goes back to the smart part of your brain as opposed to the frontal part of your brain. And we can get into neuroscience and this sort of thing maybe perhaps some other time. But nonetheless, when we're staring at a screen, whether it's a television or your smartphone, and that thing is scanning at 60 hertz, it is entirely your rational thinking part of your brain. And when you read a paper book or a Kindle, something that's side-lit or actually is a dead tree, then it actually uses the abstract part of your brain. And you uh, move into an entirely different place that's closer to meditation than just simply front stimulus. And you'll realize this um, if you play video games at night or watch a movie and then you go crash in bed and you'll see a gajillion white dots inside your eyelids. And so the little trick on that, of course, is it's fine to watch the movie, but just read something for 20 or 30 minutes while you're laying in bed to get your brain to go back to abstract and you'll sleep a lot better. So can you tell what kind of research I've been doing a lot of lately? Uh, Very interesting stuff. So because I'll tell you why I'm interested in all this. I'm interested in how people are discipled to follow Jesus. And so I'm very keen and interested in how do habits work and how does discipline work and how does willpower and the power of community and how do people follow Jesus. I become a vast, uh, well, I don't know if vast is the right word. I become some sort of hobbyist (laughs) about how the brain works and about how people get things changed in their lives. Okay? So I'm on this sort of thing, and I think we would all do well to study this sort of thing. Let's figure out. How, why do we keep doing the same thing and expecting different results? What do we call that? Definition of insanity, right? So, you do the same thing, expect different results? Crazy. It's not working. All right. Well, let me bring you to something that is a, a habit. And I've worked hard at it around here. And just uh, for you first service sort of insider type people, you know, um, you know, a couple of years, three years ago, I tried to do a lot of liturgy during service, and it just failed miserably. One, because that's the kind of church we are. You know, we just don't do liturgy and written prayers and so forth. But I thought the right strategy was to give you guys a smorgasbord, like a sampler set of liturgy, and totally missed the whole point. Liturgy only works, liturgy, I mean written prayers, like prayers you repeat over and over. Liturgy only works if you repeat it over and over and over. That's why the original monks memorized the Psalms. Because when they're out working, chopping wood, and plowing a field, there, the Psalms are in the background voice in their mind. They are praying to God. Anyway, I totally messed it up. But we have gotten one down, and that is the Lord's table. Because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, this is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And then we all stand, you really do, and we all say the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Because what we're trying to do is make this 
the prayer of our life. And more than just reciting it as some sort of dead prayer, we make it alive and we close our eyes and we attempt to do it from memory. Let us pray together out loud. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. So you have seduced us, God. And we have allowed ourselves to be seduced. May this coming year be a year where we resolve to follow you and be seduced by you. And we all said, amen. Join me, everyone. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace, everyone.